Good morning. The Lord be with you. As we transition into this season of Advent and the marking of a new church calendar year, it seems really fitting to me that we should be talking about hope this Sunday, because that's exactly what the coming of Christ is. It's a time of hope. It's a movement towards the fulfillment of God's promises, past and present and future. It's an inbreaking of his righteousness. I'm going to read the scripture once again. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Friends, today we proclaim the good news that our God is not playing with dice. He's coming to do what is just and right, and therefore we have hope. I have a younger brother who turned 23 this week, and for his birthday, what he wanted for, was for our whole family to play a game of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I have never played this game. I have heard of it. I assumed it was a weird, nerdy game that I would never play. But I love my little brother, and I was also promised pizza and wine, so I played. <laughs> As you do. I didn't realize when I agreed to play this game that it was going to take up three hours. And that's just to play the game. My little brother spent unfathomable time setting the game up because each person who plays has character descriptions, and he wrote that all out for us. And then on top of that, it's a choose-your-own-adventure type of game, so he also spent time to write out every outcome that could happen based on decisions that we made as a group. So what you do is you have, are told different options of what you can do. So you can go into a cave or not go into a cave. You can fight the goblins or not fight the goblins. And based on every decision, that's what the outcome is. You roll dice and it tells you, you either got attacked by goblins or you got away this time. You were either injured or you were not. It's a game of completely arbitrary outcomes that depend, is dependent on the rolling of dice. If you think I'm doing a bad job explaining it, because you have played it before, I'm sorry, but also no, I don't care enough to learn more about it. <laughs> so as I said before, each person playing inhabits a character. And the character that I got to play is called the cleric. They're a healer. And so I had this list of character traits that I uh, was assigned. And one of mine said, you secretly wonder whether the gods care about mortal affairs at all. And it stopped me in my tracks because I felt something deep inside of me tell me that that's how I think as well. It was echoing something that was true about myself. That I was, as I was playing this character, which my character by the name was called Diana, goddess of the seven leagues, that as I was playing this person, I was 
feeling the same way, some of the same things this person was feeling. Because as much as I hate to admit it, I also secretly wonder whether God cares about the affairs on this earth as well. And a few weeks ago, I was sitting in a discipleship group here at the table, and I was talking about some of the we were talking about our views of God, and, and I was explaining something that I thought, and one of them looked at me and said that the God I believe in isn't real. And I thought, well, this is a discipleship group. What do you mean? <laughs> and after further discussion, I realized that the reason they said that is because I have a false view of God, that the God that has been propped up in my mind and pieced together bit by bit by bad theology and life experiences isn't really the God of the Bible, that I have this view of God that is much more like the narrator of the game, the dungeon master, than I would care to admit. And it stopped me in my tracks, and as we were playing this game that just kept going through my mind over and over again, that this God that I believe in is more like this narrator, dungeon master person, this person that rolls dice and there's arbitrary outcomes and is kind of capricious. And that that is more similar to my view of God than I'm comfortable admitting to even myself. But the good news for me and for all of us today is that our Messiah isn't playing with dice. He is coming to do what is just and right, and therefore we have hope. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. God is coming to reign in righteousness. These verses are a promise to a people in waiting. The people of Israel were in exile. And it was meant to be a comfort and a source of hope. Jeremiah was telling a tough audience that despite all circumstances and all evidence to the contrary, that days were coming when the Messiah was going to come to do what is just and right, and therefore they could have hope. Despair is the absence of hope. People meet despair when they can't envision God's promised future. But despair also opens the door to hope. It points to the importance of waiting and anticipating and expectation, and that's what we're marking in this season of Advent. Trusting in God's promised future we can imagine the shape and fulfillment it will take in the future. We place ourselves in a posture to partner with God in the advent of a new reality. Our imagination transforms despair into hope. And it's not an inactive hope. It's participating in an active way in the fulfillment of what that looks like in God's promised future, because God's promised future can't come if we aren't living in that hope and not living in despair. Mm -hmm. 
our imagination can transform the movement towards the hope we envision. As I was reading and preparing for this sermon, I came across this quote that I also felt really summed up how I feel about this season. I'm going to read it to you. Probably the reason I love Advent so much is that as a reflection of how I feel most of the time. I might not feel sorry during Lent when the liturgical calendar begs repentance. I might not feel victorious even though it is Easter morning. I might not feel full of the Spirit even though it is Pentecost and the liturgy spins out fiery gusts of ecstasy. But during Advent, I am always in sync with the season. Advent unfailingly embraces and comprehends my reality. And what is that? I think of the Spanish word anello, or longing. Advent is when the church can no longer contain its unfulfilled desire, and a cry of anello bursts forth, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Jeremiah offers us this cry of longing and speaks of a righteous Savior. And we can long for that day of hope when we will see it become a reality. A day that is surely coming in God's promised future. When poor people are no longer sent to shelters or forced to sleep on the streets. A day that is surely coming in God's promised future when there is no more violence, mass incarceration, or 21 gun salutes at the funeral of soldiers. A day that is surely coming when there is no more violence, broken relationships, or natural disasters. A day that is surely coming when the world is no longer torn asunder by racism and sexism and homophobia. Because our Messiah isn't playing with dice. He is coming to do what is just and what is right, and therefore we do have hope. Justice and righteousness mean fair and equitable treatment in all relationships. It's impartial law courts. It's protection of the weak against the strong. It refers to conduct in accord with God's purposes. When you boil it down, righteousness is the ethic of living towards others in just and loving relationships. It's us living in just and loving relationships with each other and with God, and that is how God deals with us, and that is how he tells us to deal with one another, because the Lord is our righteous Savior. I long for the confidence to proclaim what Jeremiah proclaims and to believe that same, that, the, that our Messiah is coming to do what is just and right. I long to believe in a God that's not capricious, that's not playing with dice, that doesn't haphazardly come up with outcomes. And that is how our God is. Someday there is going to be an inbreaking of righteousness, and there will be more justice and righteousness and mercy than we can even grasp in our imaginations. But our job is still to imagine that future, because it's the only way we're going to be able to stave off despair. The kind of hope that is required to believe in this kind of righteousness is subversive. It looks at the systems and constructs of the world 
and chooses to see an alternative future. With nothing in place to ground it in reality, it can only be imagined through hope. The hope of the world restored proclaims that God has the victory over evil and that it does not have the last word, that everything sad is coming untrue. And this optimism can only be grounded in Christ because he is the hope of the world. To me, as I've been preparing to preach this message, the thing that has struck me again and again is the innocence of this message, the innocence that's required to believe in this kind of future and this kind of hope. In a world of division and devastation and death and destruction, hope feels radical and naive at the same time. And I started asking myself, what would it look like for me to have this kind of hope? What would it look like for me to change my mindset? An imagined world in God's promised future that I can't picture yet. And as I was asking God what that would look like, the answer came to me, and then I asked again because I just didn't like it. (laughs) And I just feel like that's how it goes sometimes. (laughs) You see, recently I was talking with somebody, a friend, about... I was complaining about something happening in the world in politics. And this person told me, instead of complaining, I should be praying for that person. And it kind of stopped me in my traps because I thought, well, I don't like that person. I don't, would rather not pray for them. Um, I don't like anything that they stand for. I don't like most of the things that they do. And I think they're causing wreaking havoc and chaos in the world. Why would I pray for that person? <laughs> but the other reason I didn't want to pray for that person is because when your view of God is more like the dungeon master, what's really the point? A relatively uninvolved and haphazard letting things play out depending on how the dice are rolled. When that's your view of God, there's not much motivation to pray for change. And this has been my image of God and justice. And the good news for me and for all of us today that I have been proclaiming over myself all week long is that our Messiah isn't playing with dice. He is coming to do what is just and right, and therefore we have hope. Advent is the season that brings longing into expression. It is a time when we are called to name suffering and injustice and to picture that promised alternative future that God speaks of. The stories of Advent are dug from the soil of struggle, from the landscape of dashed dreams, from the vista where sin still reigns supreme and hope has gone on vacation. When despair is the norm, hope is subversive. And this hope, which leads us to participate in the reality of God's coming to earth, is also centristic to the Eucharist. Because we are nourished 
by the hope of God coming to earth, the fact that he already has come and the fact that he is coming and the fact that every time we participate in this sacrament, God is present in that moment and therefore we have hope. The Eucharist table is a place for everyone with deep longing for a world to be put right to come. To pray with Jeremiah for the days that are surely coming when the world will be put right. When we meet face to face with the righteousness of God and he can impart his hope on us. For me, the imagining of a world different than my reality is going to be by practicing something I just really don't want to do. I'm committing that every time I complain about this said person, that I'm going to pray for them. And whether that complaint is voiced or not, that I'm going to pray for that person. Because in order to envision this promised future of hope, I have to live it out in everyday reality. I have to practice it. I have to train my eyes to see a future that isn't here yet. But the days are coming and will surely come when that future is here. And it's going to take practice, and it's going to take praying for somebody I don't want to pray for. But that's the only way this hope is going to sink its way into my heart and into my mind so I can envision that future. So I want to ask you what living rightly towards others looks like for you. As we kick off this new year, this season of longing and waiting, what would it look like for you to ground your hope of a future in the present reality of Christ? The reality that he has come and he is here now and he is coming. Our response this morning is going to be a little different than what we usually do. We usually recite a prayer together. And I thought as we kicked off this new year, I thought the best thing we could do is to proclaim in unity words of hope that go into direct opposition against injustice and despair. Our response today is going to be to recite together the Nicene Creed. If you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, which we recite every Sunday, there'll be some familiar passages. For me, the reason I chose this is because I realized that because we recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, I tend to be an autopilot when we are reciting it, that I'm not fully engaged when we are doing that. And I thought this would be a great way to engage our hearts and our minds and our bodies in this new year, with hope in our hearts and on our lips. 